Hello again and welcome to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And I'm Stephanie Hearney. And today it's all about Midir and Etain. Finally. So we had a bit of an unavoidable, unscheduled break, but we are back now and raring to go. Yep. This is the concluding part of our retelling of the first subtale of The Wound of Etain. And in the highly abridged versions that often appear in compilations of Irish mythology um, that you see in gift shops and heritage sites and sometimes in storybooks aimed at children, this is really where the story begins. And those versions often just have the title Midder and Attain, hence the title of our episode today. And don't worry, the children's versions are usually fairly sanitised as there's a lot in this story that really isn't suitable for that age group. But mainly in the in the third subtale. I mean, we'll let you judge yourselves, really. So, as I was saying, there's three subtales. And this one, the first, is simply titled uh, Tokmark Adain in the original Old Irish, which translates as The Wooing of Adain. The second subtale is called Tokmark Adain on Shobius, which translates as The Wooing of Adain, this again. Great title. <laughs> and the third subtale was called Tokmark Attain on So, which means the wooing of Attain again, because medieval scribes never quite mastered the art of naming sequels, apparently. Now, as we mentioned before, the first subtale is set somewhere in the timeline of the mythological cycle. That's the collection of stories that focus on the deeds of the two a day, the fur bullock, and the four Morians. But the other two parts are set in the Ulster Cycle timeline. The stories featuring Cúchulainn, Queen Maeve, um, etc. So we won't be doing those on this show for a while. But we are working on an audiobook style version of the entire saga, which includes what we've done so far. And this will be available on Patreon to patrons on the Salmon of Knowledge tier and higher. That's at patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. Speaking of Patreon, it's thanks to patrons like Colleen Eldridge and Jonathan Hewitt that we are able to keep making this show. And we'll be giving shout outs to more of you in the coming weeks and months. Also, a big hello to Mark and Killian, who we were chatting to at the Hill of Tara the night of the summer solstice. It's always really nice to, to meet people who listen to the show. So big hello to them. Now, back to the story. The earliest surviving fragments of this tale comes from the 11th century manuscript Laren Huther, but it was most likely first transcribed in the 8th century, making it one of the oldest Irish sagas that has survived to the present day. We've covered the saga on three previous episodes, and this is the conclusion of the first part. So if you're new to the show, you might want to go back and listen to parts 1, 2 and 3, which are episodes 11, 13 and 15 respectively. But if you want to plough ahead or you need a refresher, here's the summary. The Dagda, one of the gods and king of the fairy mounds known as the She, has a one-night stand with the goddess Bowen and she becomes pregnant. To hide this transgression from Bowen's husband, Elkmar, the Dagda uses magic to make the passage of nine months appear like a single day. When Angus is born, the Dagda takes him to be fostered by Midder and his wife Fumna, where he is brought up not knowing his true heritage. That is until a rival youth spills the beans. Midder then takes Angus to see his father, the Dagda, where he demands a she of his own, and the Dagda suggests a ploy involving wordplay to help the young god trick poor old Altmar out of his. A year later, Midder sustains an injury while visiting Angus at Brunavonia, and as part of his compensation, he asks Angus to go to County Down to ask on his behalf for the hand of the beautiful Attain in marriage. After some negotiation and help from the Dagda that requires him to fight a giant octopus, Attain goes back to the south with Angus. We take up the story a year later. Midder and Attain have been enjoying an extended honeymoon as guests of Angus, mainly because Midder has been avoiding his first wife, Fumnock. But time is up and Midder must face the music. And if you thought the Dagda fighting an octopus was weird, you ain't seen nothing yet. Here's Steffi with the concluding part of our retelling of The Wooing of Attain. Fumnach, 
my love. I missed you so. I only stayed away this last year for your own sake. I thought you'd be upset, you see, and that it'd be best to give you a bit more time to adjust. Midger nervously shakes, wildly gesticulates, and his voice trembles. I'm sure you and Etain will get on very well in time. There is no one else in the room while he rehearses the words. And she'll be an extra pair of hands around the house. You deserve a bit of help after. Who are you talking to, my love? Etain stands in the doorway, her scarlet hair shimmering in the sunlight that streams through the broom. Oh, I didn't hear the door open. No one. I I was speaking to no one. There's no one here, Midder replies. Well, I can see that, says Etain. But you were talking. Are you all right, love? You look nervous. Oh, it's just... Midder trails off. Fumnak, Etain adds, ending his sentence. Well, yes, I'm just... She'll be angry, I know it, and you don't know her, Midder replies. I thought you were doing well there, Etain smirks. Oh, you you heard the whole thing, says Midder, embarrassed. Most of it, she replies, letting out a breath that is almost a laugh. Midder surrenders to the moment and lets out a short laugh, but it is the briefest respite from his anxiety. She is powerful, you know, he adds solemnly. Yes, Etain sighs. Angus went into great detail. Dreadful and cunning, a sorceress. Her foster father is Brezel Etalom, the sorcerer, and he taught her everything there was to know about magic. I'm sure she'll be fine. Midder throws his purple cloak across his shoulders and sighs. Angus is waiting outside the brew to see the couple off. The chariot he procured for Midder the year before shines bright gold in the morning sunlight. Two horses already hitched, waiting to draw them to their destination. Now, if there's any trouble, any trouble at all, you're both welcome back. Actually, are you sure you won't stay longer? Etain laughs. You too, would you give over? Before the last few days, I only heard you say good things about her. She has good qualities, don't get me wrong, says Angus, but you don't want to cross her, says Midger. Angus smiles and nods. Well, if you're determined to go then, safe journey and good luck. Angus embraces Midger. Then Etain and the couple board the chariot and set off from Newgrange, travelling west. It is mostly a pleasant journey, with many stops for Midder to show his bride the beauty spots of Brega and his native Meath. For the last half hour, however, Midder is silent. He is running his prepared speech over in his head. When they finally arrive at Midder's home in Brie as the sun sets in the west, Fumnach is waiting at the door wearing a long, flowing white gown with sleeves that resemble lilies in full flower. Midder pulls back on the reins and the horses come to a halt with the chariot and Midder steps off. He leaves Etain behind on the chariot and makes straight for Fumnach. Fumnach, my love, he says, beginning his speech. But Fumnach speaks before he can say another word. Midder, darling, I'm so happy to see you too. But where are your manners? Help that girl down off the chariot before you do anything else. Oh, I... Midder turns around to see Etain smiling and he rushes over to where she is waiting to disembark. He takes her hand and she steps onto the ground of Brie Etain has hardly taken a step towards the door before Fumnach has caught up. Etain, how lovely to meet you. It will be lovely having another woman around and can I just say, you look absolutely stunning, Midder. 
How could you have kept her away for so long? Well, um, Mither didders. But Fumnach isn't really listening. Let me show you around, she says to Atain. Sure you come too, husband. See what I've done when you were away. It It is so nice to meet you too, Fumnach. Midder and Angus have told me so many wonderful things about you, says Atain. Fumnach takes Atain by the hand and leads her into the mound that is to be her new home and Midder nervously tags along behind. The two women make small talk as the tour progresses. Fumnach asks Atain about her homeland and Atain asks Fumnach about the things she enjoys. When the tour is over and they retire to the main hall for refreshments, Fumnach instructs Midder to fetch Atain's things from the chariot and take them to her chamber. Midder, still nervous, silently complies. When he has left the room, Fumnach shows Atain to the best chair and Atain thanks her and sits. I must admit, says Atain, I was getting nervous during the last half hour of the journey, but you have really put me at ease. I'm glad, says Fumnach. It is the home of a good woman you come into, and your comfort gladdens my heart. Before Etain can say a word, a wand made of scarlet quicken tree drops from one of Fumnach's <laughs> sleeves, and with a loud cackle, she strikes Etain across the head with it. Etain instantly liquefies and flows onto the floor, finding form as a pool of water. And what could be more comfortable than water? It settles everywhere it goes. Midder returns to the room and stops in his track when he sees only Fumnach in the room and a pool of water at her feet. Fumnach grins and gestures towards the pool. I hope you two will be very happy together. I'm going to stay with my Acha. She storms out, leaving Midder staring, open-mouthed, at the pool of water. He is alone again. Moments ago, he had two wives. Now he has none. A tear rolls down his cheek. Sobbing, Midder leaves the room and closes the door, leaving it to the water that was once attain. Midder leaves the room untouched for months. He spends most of his time in his bedchamber. Occasionally, on his better days, he finds a quiet spot in the woods where no one will disturb him and he just sits, silent, listening to the songs of birds and the buzzing of insects, the whispers of the trees and the whistling winds. One day, as he sits in the forest, something comes over him. It is as if an idea has been placed in his head, but he knows not by who or to what end, just that he must go. His compulsion takes him back to Brille, through an entrance, down the corridor until he is faced with the door to the main hall, the room where the pool of water that once was his wife remains. For the first time since the incident, he opens the door. He is shocked to see that the water is gone, and in its place is a greenish-grey worm. The worm wriggles on the ground, though he knows that worms don't recognise people or gods. He thinks this one is excited to see him. Tame, he gasps. Can it be? It must, it must. The water is gone and this room has remained closed. It must be her. He rushes to where the worm wriggles on the ground, scoops it up in his hands and places it carefully on the good chair. He scrambles to a bucket of turf and firewood and as fast as he can, builds and lights a fire. The weeks turn into months and the months become a year and all the while Midir keeps that fire burning. When he isn't collecting firewood, 
he stays by the side of the worm who he believes to be his beloved attain. And then, as winter gives way to spring, the worm begins to transform. First, she sprouts six thin legs. Midir watches with delight as she scurries to the door when he returns home with the kindling. Then she grows wings and Midir is overjoyed when she flies into his lap. Finally, she changes shape from tubular to oval and her colour turns from greenish grey to scarlet, the colour of Attain's hair. She grows to the size of the head of a man and Midir knows that this is his beloved because her song sounds like the voice of Attain. Her scent is like the perfume Etain wore and the way she looks at him with those eyes that shine like precious stones makes his heart sing like it did when he locked eyes with Etain. From then on, they are inseparable. When Midder goes for a walk, Etain the fly is by his side. When he sits on a hillside watching a game of hurling, she lies in his lap and when he travels on his chariot she buzzes happily alongside no matter what the pace. Midir dismisses all thoughts of finding a new wife. The companionship of Etain the fly is everything his soul desires. His spirit is nourished by her very existence and it is not only him that sings her praises. Wherever they go, her fragrance banishes hunger and thirst. The dew drops that fall from her wings cure any sickness or disease, and her song lifts every cloud of depression over God, man and beast that it encounters. In time, everyone loves Attain. Everyone except Fumna. It is no surprise then that when Midir receives a message from Fumna saying she wishes to visit Brile to make right on her wrongs, he is deeply suspicious and says as much in his response. As a surety, Fumna agrees to bring three witnesses with her, two of which Midir already knows, the Dagda and Achma, and a third, a young god whose reputation is growing, Lu, the foster son of the fur bullock queen Talcha. Still reluctant, but somewhat appeased by this arrangement, Midir agrees to the meeting, but not inside his mound, outside in the open. Who knows what charms and amulets she has hidden around that place, he thinks. When the day arrives, there is nothing he can do to get Etain, the fly, to stay behind in the mound. Perhaps it is just as well, he thinks, maybe that is what Fumnach wants. At least the Dagda and Akma and Lu will be there. They meet on a hill, not far from Brile. Fumnach stands at the centre of the party, facing Midir and Etain. The fly buzzes over his right shoulder. The Dagda stands behind her, Akma to her left and Lu to her right. It is a great wrong I have done, says Fumnach. The others nod their heads in solemn agreement. And I am here to rectify that wrong, she continues. Will you turn Attain back to her original form, asks Midir. The other three here are blocking my magic, she replies. Would you have them let their guard down? Midir looks at Etain, the fly. He looks at the Dagda, who is shaking his head, at Akma, who just shrugs, and at the young Lu, who doesn't give any indication at all. Do it, says Midir. Are you sure now? You could be... The Dagda starts. Do it, insists Midir. 
Nothing occurs that is apparent to the naked eye, but the atmosphere changes when the three gods comply with Midder's request. Now I will rectify my mistake, says Fumnach. I do not repent for my deed, she rasps. I only lament that I did not finish the task. In whatsoever part of Ireland she might be, I will do nought but harm to attain so long as she lives in whatsoever shape she might be. It's a trap, the Dagda cries out. Before the others have time to react, Fumnach presses her left hand against Akma. Akma Agmius Olm, through you my words become powerful signs that bind this party that no power shall ever stop me. Fumnach removes her hand and lines and crosses fill the air surrounding the hill. She presses her right hand against Lu. Lu, Lugus, lightning rod, from you I draw the fire of the sky to cast a tain out of this circle. Bolts of lightning flash from the sky, singeing the grass by Midder's feet and attained the fly is thrown clear of the others. She turns and presses both hands against the Dagda. Dagda, Dagadevos, master of spells, guardian of the winds, I call from you a hurricane to blow attain away far from here. A terrible gust of wind appears from nowhere. It doesn't penetrate the circle, but Attain, the fly who is outside, is taken like a coracle on a raging sea, and soon she is out of sight. Fumnach throws her two hands upon the ground, and with the last of the power she took from the three gods, she vanishes in a cloud of purple smoke. Midder sobs. What will you do now, Midder? asks the Dagda. I will search for her to the end of the earth until the end of time. Perhaps she will never be safe with you so long as Fumnach lives, says Akma. Those are wise words, says Lou. I have never encountered such a cunning and skilled sorcerer. But what can I do? asks Midder. I will issue instruction says the Dagda, that whomsoever of our kind that finds Attain should shelter her until Fumnach is no longer a danger to her. We will send word that she is safe, Akma adds. Then the three gods leave Midder on the hill and he is alone once again. Attain drifts for seven years on the winds. Wherever she goes, the wind blows, and she cannot settle upon tree, nor hill, nor mountain. She is almost dead of exhaustion when, by luck, she floats on the wind over Brunaboinia, where Angus stands surveying his domain. Etain, the giant scarlet fly, goes hurtling into Angus's chest, knocking him backwards. Angus manages to stay on his feet, and he grabs the fly. He has never seen a fly like this, but he has heard. This is a tain. Recalling his father's instructions on the matter, he knows he cannot return her to Brila. He gathers her up in the fleece of his cloak to ensure the wind doesn't take her again and brings her into the brew, placing her in the room that she shared with Midder for their first year together. He leaves the door of the room open and says to Attain, though he doesn't know if she understands, You can come and go as you please. The window above the door is open, so go and enjoy the sun and the fresh air. Be wary of winds, though. The months go by. And Angus nurses attain the fly back to full health. It is not long after he receives a message from Midder. He wants him to visit. I will not be gone long, attain. It is Midder who summons me. He probably wants to hear how you are. He misses you dearly. Angus says this before leaving the brew and setting out for Brila when his chariot is out of sight.
another figure emerges from the long grass in front of the brew. It is Fumnach, dressed in a long black gown with tulip sleeves. Her wand drops from a sleeve just as a tain the fly comes out through the window box. Fumnach points her wand at the fly. If he will follow you to the end of time, let the winds of time take you away, away, she chants. A gust of wind blows up around Etain. It twists around her and then vanishes, taking Fumnach's nemesis to who knows when. Poor Etain. Yeah, she just can't catch a break, can she? No, I mean, as bad luck goes, you can't really top being turned into a pool of water and then a worm of some sort and then a giant fly. So you'd imagine anyway. Yeah, she must have thought it couldn't have gotten any worse after all of that. But Fumnak then comes back and has her blown away on the winds twice. And the second time she's sent off on some form of magical time travel journey. You probably won't be surprised that Atain has been sent forward in time, seeing as how we mentioned that the rest of the story takes place in the timeline of the Ulster Cycle. To her, it seems like she has travelled for another seven years, but when she is able to escape the wind, it is actually 1,200 years later. But we won't tell you what happens there now. Although you know the way that Marvel do these end credits scenes? Well, the first subtale has one of those. Kind of. That, sorry, I just got momentarily distracted there because I was thinking it's kind of like the inverse of when I'm trying to do some work and I feel like, you know, 1,000 hours has passed where it's actually just been seven minutes. But anyway, all joking aside, it's really more of an epilogue. It briefly lets you see the fate of Fumnach and where or when Etain gets transported off to. Do you remember that time that I somehow convinced you to go and see Avengers Endgame with me in the cinema? I don't know how I could possibly forget. I feel like it's just seared into my memory. Isn't that the one that's like a thousand hours long? Well, it's about three hours long. I actually couldn't tell you what happened in that film other than it was half one in the morning when it ended and you made me sit through the credits for the extra scene at the end. And then it didn't have one, actually. (laughs) In fairness, it was actually the first one that didn't have one. Never again. Do you know, now that I think of it, I feel like at the time you said to me, do you want to come and see Endgame? And I thought it was a film adaptation of the Samuel Beckett play <laughs> and said, yeah. And every time... No way you thought that. <laughs> I, I really think there is. Cause I, and every time I think of like having to sit, because I'm just like, I'm not, I, I'd probably call this major controversy now. I'm just like, not, I can't take to the Marvel films, you know? And every time I think of Endgame, all I can, like the, the Marvel film, all I can think of is the Beckett line from Endgame. Is there a misery more loftier than mine? That's <laughs> the only thing um, I can think of. I mean, the Samuel Beckett special cut of Endgame would be fantastic. I would be into that. I'd watch that, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the only, the only Marvel thing I really enjoyed was WandaVision. Moving on, our retelling of this story adds a fair bit of dialogue to what was in the original manuscript. Some of the dialogue we used is in the Lara Nahudra and the Yellow Book of Lekin versions. Other lines of dialogue are based on things in the manuscript that weren't presented as dialogue. And some are original poetic license based on the situation the characters find themselves in. Now we'll have a link to the original in the show notes so you can cross-reference these if you like. The other big addition was the scene where Fumnok weaves the spell that blows Etain away on the winds for the first time. In the original, the meeting is arranged and the Dagda, Agma and Lou are present to prevent Fumnok from doing anything mad, but she just does it anyway and there's no explanation as to how she does it. Now maybe the person who wrote the story down left something out from a previous version because I would see this as a bit of a plot hole given how powerful those three gods are and the fact that they were actually there to stop her doing anything like that. So I felt there needed to be a scene showing that and I thought about what magic powers those gods have that Fumnok might be able to draw upon to turn their presence to her advantage. Bit of a nod to WandaVision. Yeah, with Agma there and him being the creator of the Ohm script and with some medieval Irish writers calling runic script, the Norse runic script, Norse Ohm, 
I couldn't help thinking of the whole she who cast the runes line in one division. This scene with Fumnok outwitting Midger and the other three gods represents a first for us. Lou makes his first appearance in a story on the podcast. Now we've mentioned continuities and timelines and the mythological cycle doesn't have one really but it it does have the one created for the pseudo histories but that's a medieval invention and there are loads of stories that just don't fit neatly together so there's no canon timeline to speak of. Lou is in this story in the original manuscript though he has no lines of dialogue so we made this his introduction in in our continuity, I suppose, in the Irish myth- in the Irish mythology podcast canon. Uh, and now you're going to be seeing a lot more of him in the coming months as we build towards the culmination of the saga, the second battle of Moitura, which we started towards the end of season one. Given that this story is sometimes classed as part of the Ulster cycle, it makes sense that he's in it because he plays a big role in that as one of the gods worshipped by the human protagonists or semi-divine human protagonists. Um, You might remember that last episode we told a story of how the Dagda created the plain of Murtima in County Louth. Well, that county gets its name from Lou, and his name is spelled L-U-G-H, but in the modern Irish that would be L-U-Fada, which is the name of the county, uh, County Louth, Oscailga. Surprising that it isn't named after the Dagda, but maybe there are still people in Drogheda and Dundalk who haven't forgiven him for removing the body of water that separated them. (laughs) Well, I suppose. But look, you know, it's really the Normans who are to blame for putting the two towns into one county. Well, I suppose this is one of your ancient grudges that (laughs) is perfectly justified. What about Fumnak here? Do you think she has a right to be aggrieved? Well, look, I suppose Midder could really have handled things a bit better, but her her response was a bit much, in fairness. It was. Um, it was a bit, like... I suppose it brings up the in- interesting question of whether polygamy was ever actually a thing in Ireland. Well, if the Breton law tracts are anything to go by, it was and was probably common enough, but only within certain circles. So the law tracts of the time refer to nine types of sexual union. The first three are different takes on sort of conventional marriage and these are listed in Fergus Kelly's Guide to Early Irish Law as one where both parties contribute financially, one where the woman is dependent on the man and one where the man is dependent on the woman. And after that, then you have more informal situations uh, like the, the union of a man visiting, which is a sort of formalisation of an arrangement where the woman stayed in her own place, usually with family and with the blessing of the family, he'd stay there with her sometimes. In these types of union, the parties and their associated kin have legal rights and were considered marriages of various kinds. The first wife would usually be considered the quote unquote chief wife, though, and any after that was a kind of concubine, but had half of the legal rights of the chief wife. I wonder if Fumlock was thinking that Midder was going to replace her as chief wife. Like, he was away for an awfully long time. But either way, Etain didn't deserve what happened to her there. No, definitely not. Like, you know, why couldn't she have turned Midder into a fly? It was him that went about things behind her back and was his decision to stay away for a year and although one of the things that I quite like about this tale is how Fumnach it turns Etain into a fly there's no you know beautiful swan or a horse or a seagull or or something graceful it's a fly and when you think of what actually you know what that symbolizes it's really very interesting flies in literature are generally indicative of, of death and disease and unpleasant things and you know kind of we have disgust for them, but for Fumnach, there's a real sort of venom to to what she's doing. You know, what do flies do? Well, they sort of buzz about the house, annoying everyone around them. You know, they spread disease and pestilence. But at the same time, they're kind of a non-entity to most people. They're a creature that's kind of there in the background, making a noise and being generally sort of irritating and hard to get rid of. And that's very much how Fumnach sees Etain. That is, a presence that has to be dealt with. And, you know, she's cleaning out her house, basically. Now, interestingly, in Prometheus Bound, which is attributed to the Athenian tragic playwright Aeschylus, uh, though apparently there's some sort of question mark over whether or not that's, that's correct, but a gadfly 
sent by Zeus's wife Hera pursues and torments his mistress who has been transformed into a cow and is watched constantly by the hundred eyes of the herdsman Argus. Now I thought this was kind of interesting because it's basically a similar sort of vibe. You know the fly is a source of constant irritation in another woman's life. Much the same way a fly is that you can't get you know you can't get it when it's kind of buzzing about your kitchen or whatever. You know what I was wondering today in relation to flies, you know the way when you see them kind of flying in a circle in your sitting room, it's always three flies. Is there anybody out there who's an expert on flies that can tell me why it's always three? I don't know, like just, you know, light, light a citronella candle like I know, anyone else. I was just else, wondering why it's know? always three. So three is the magic number. Like, who knows? I don't know. Do you know what you could have done when you were well, wondering that? You could have Googled it. Like, uh, it probably just sort of brought me to a Reddit thread. I mean, might have known the answer instead of wasting time. But back to film, look, anyway, <laughs> she, she could she could have just settled for for the divorce. Really, was couldn't couldn't she? And like, it wasn't Atain's fault that Miller had wronged her. Essentially, under if if what I'm reading into the Brian Law is correct, they were film, look, and Miller were at that point, effectively divorced and Fumluk just had to basically say the word. Yeah, there there is a thing in the law tracts about how the wife would be considered under the rule of the husband unless he failed to fulfil his duties as a husband, which he seems to be doing here when it comes to her. And actually, that's one of those things that highlights how Brehan Law wasn't always as great for women as some people make out. Yeah, they could get a divorce, but until then, they were largely considered under their husband's rule. But anyway, what do we know of Fumnach herself? Well, most of what we know of her comes from the wooing of Atain. She's the foster child of a powerful sorcerer. And remember, we talked about fosterage in the last episode on this. The foster parent was legally obliged to provide an education befitting their fosterling. Well, Brazil Etterlin has taught Filmnuk his sorcerer's ways and in her anger she uses those skills to banish Atain. So really what she's done here is a banishing spell and actually there's a, there's a binding spell element to it too and you'll find if you're the type of person who likes to relax by leafing through an owl grimoire that the two often go side by side in the same spell. So most, you know a lot of banishing spells are also binding spells and, and vice versa and I think the less lethal they are, the more binding they are than banishing. Imagine having that power, though. Like, not, you know, there, there's no end to the amount of people that I would cast as flies. There'd be swarms, <laughs> plagues of flies. You know, anyway, uh, so Fumnach banishes Atain from Brila, but also effectively binds her from returning as long as she, Fumnach, that is, lives. She also has to bind the magic of the three gods from being directed towards her. That she achieves this shows her to be a really quite powerful and cunning sorceress. Now you'll remember at the start of the story, Atain recounts something Angus told her about Fumnach's power. Now in the original text, we see Angus saying to Midder, quote, Give heed to the woman thou takest with thee because of the dreadful cunning woman that awaits thee with all the knowledge and skill and craft that belongs to her race. And we mentioned giving a nod to WandaVision there, but that was an obvious thing to do because everything in that scene, it, like, it was more or less in the original. It was set up like, and if you teased it out and read between the lines. Now, Fumlik is experiencing this terrible anguish from a kind of loss, and she has this immense power that she's going to use to put things right as she sees it. You could also make the, the Star Wars reference about how the Jedi aren't supposed to form attachments because they will this immense power. And then when the attachments are broken, um, the pain can impel them to use that power in ways that really aren't cool. But we are only, we're only really short of seeing Fumnuk going around force choking everyone she, she, she meets in her rage. Another skill uh, I'd love to have. Apology accepted. <laughs> anyway, actually, there's, there's a poem. For the people who are listening to this, Mark sort of did this thing with his hands where he pre pretended to force choke some <laughs> some kind of being in the world but anyway but it, it was more like the um, smallest violin in the world version of the, the, the force yeah. choke I had a, it was, it was, it was it's a very like force it was, choking it was, it was force a, choking an actual fly yeah it was more of a force pinch I think <laughs> the less lethal version <laughs> <laughs> 
we were talking about Film Lux Rage there, and there's actually a poem called Film Lux Rage by a contemporary poet called Anne Egan. And it's actually one of a series of poems um, she wrote concerning Film Lux. And I'd never actually read these before, but came across them when we were researching this episode. And they're actually, they're, I think they're really good. Yeah, these poems approach the matter of Fumnok turning Attain into a pool of water from different points of view. So you see Fumnok's side and Attain's side. And we don't have time to read them all out here, but we will put links in the show notes so you can go and have a look. But I'll just read out the opening of Fumnok's rage here because she really, really captures that point of view. That one sickens me, just the cut of her floating about my palace colours of the rainbow are not enough for her oh no she must have silver ribbons golden threads in and out so you can just imagine her you can really hear her seething in those words you know maybe on the phone to her friend lashing <laughs> attain out of it to her heart's content you know <laughs> another one of these poems called film Nook's pool and it's kind of from attain's point of view when she is in the form of water I pray I'll float to a stream, beg a wind to hurry me to a good river's heart. There I'll crave the gods within to restore me to my form. I'm really in- intrigued by this idea of Attain as water, just waiting to transform. Fumnik's line in our story, and what could be more comfortable than water, it set us everywhere. It's one of the lines of dialogue that I actually added in, and it's inspired from inspired by a chapter from the Tao Te Ching. Now, just in case people don't know what the Tao Te Ching is, it's a Chinese religious text that also can be classed as a philosophical text. The oldest surviving fragments of it date back to the 4th century BC, but it is traditionally believed to have been written in the 6th century BC by a man named Lao Tzu. Yeah, it's a foundational text of the Taoist religion, and it's also important in Zen Buddhism, and central to the Taoist philosophy is the concept of Wu Wei, which kind of means effortless action. And water kind of exemplifies that. Can I interrupt you here yeah. and ask you to explain Wu Wei in a bit more detail than effortless action for people who are not familiar, who are not well versed in Taoist philosophy? Please. Well, firstly, I would say that I, if you want to learn about Taoism, there's actually a very good podcast I listen to sometimes called What's This Tao All About? And to be honest, sometimes your man who's like a Taoist monk or something, uh, Carol Totten, I think his name's, sometimes he goes, well, ah, kind of not really sure myself. Like, you know, it, and it's... Oh, the gist, come on. Well, well, I think it's actually summed up in, in, in this line I'm going to read <laughs> from the Ursula Le Guin translation of the Tao Te Ching, which is the chapter on water. True goodness is like water. Water is good for everything. It doesn't compete. It goes right to the low, loathsome places and so finds a way. So the lesson is that water doesn't try to get where it needs. It just gets there. And that's, that is the essence of Wu Wei. But the point is that turning Attain into water <laughs> is Fumnik's big mistake because water always finds its way. It's Wu Wei, you Yay. might say. <laughs> God, that's like one of your jokes. I know it's fun. it was great. Absolute. I loved it. Loved it. Five like stars. The pun equivalent yeah. of Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Fumna kind of represents the opposite of all that. She desperately forces every situation, and she might eventually send Attain away in another wind. But I have a feeling things will work out for her, and Fumna hasn't really gained anything from the fight. Attain represents something else here. We are told of her beauty from the moment she is first mentioned. So becoming a fly should negate that, but it doesn't. And I don't think anyone likes having flies in their house. But as a fly, Etain is still beautiful in these stories because as it happens, her beauty isn't superficial. It's part of like the very essence of who she is and her being. And no desperate act by the jilted Fumnach can change that. Do you actually remember that line from, I think it's Confucius, is it? No, no, it's 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 Sun Tzu, the art of war, the one about if you stand on the riverbank long enough, eventually the the body... bodies of your enemies will float. Yeah, past. There's, that's there's Wu Wei in that, like, you know, it's like instead of you going charging into war, you might get killed. Just wait at the riverbank, and eventually that's Wu Wei. 
Do you know, I've heard that attributed to Tony Ben <laughs> by someone who will remain nameless. But anyway. Uh, anyway. So it must have really uh, galled film Luxine attain delight not only Midder, but practically everyone while she was in the form of a fly. But what's that thing you hear people say in, you know, that helps help self, self-help stuff? Other people's success isn't your failure. Failure is that what it is? Or? That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know. I think I actually might have heard Blind Boy saying that. I don't know whether it's actually self help thing. You know, we've talked about poetry a lot in the last um, two episodes, and I meant to get you to talk a bit about that project you were working on. And you've actually done loads of stuff since, but when when I was actually writing this down, it was kind of current. The thing you were working on with Claire Connolly for Poetry Month. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems ages ago now, but you've, 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 yeah, the well, two of you have been doing like loads more stuff since. But. Yeah, well, Claire Connolly is a very talented poet from Denver, uh, well, Denver and Portland, who I do a lot of collaboration with. Claire writes poetry and I write sort of uh, go on stuff either, that you, does an impression of poetry no for likes... want of a better term. No, I'm not. I'm not. Anyway, so I suppose, look. If uh, I, I think you should you should go and follow Claire's work. Uh, you can find them on Instagram. Uh, Claire's Instagram handle is at it's hip to be Claire. Uh, but I mean, there's definitely stuff. I, I think you'll you'll probably find them in, it tagged in in stuff in the Irish Mythology podcast. So I'll actually I'll, I'll tag some I'll link some stuff and you can find it. And we've we've done a good bit of collaboration and I use a lot of references to Irish mythology in my own work that I won't go so far as to call poetry. I'll call it something. I'll go on out of that. Anyway, the, the example in Chancerism. But both of you did great work on it and I really enjoyed it and I've been really enjoying that the more recent stuff Thanks you've very been much. doing. On a similar note, I just want to say that before we go that I've thoroughly enjoyed doing The Wooing of Time. It took a bit longer than planned but um i t- really enjoyed r- writing adapting you know recording and producing these episodes because it is one of my favorite stories um from irish mythology and it's just been a great pleasure to do for me yeah and i mean the importance of the story can't really be overstated it's such an entertaining story and it's also been uh it's also proved to be a big influence on the medieval romance particularly on Sir Orfeo, which is widely regarded as the finest example of this genre. And we'll talk about that a bit more when we come back to this too. Yeah, but that is just about all we have time for today. But what's been your highlight of the Wooing of Attain, these episodes? Probably just getting to actually record this last episode finally. (laughs) No, I'd find it hard to pick. Um, Like, I really like... I really liked some of the kind of comedy t- type, which I, I didn't think when we wrote it because I'm not one for comedy, but I liked Some of the stuff was just gas. But I, I really like the story of, of Attain and Fumnach and I really like Fumnach's just, that she's just raging. I love a really angry character who is really out for blood. And I really like the elements of that story, you know, in mythology, in Irish mythology in particular, when people are cast in spells and you have to be so, so, so specific because one sort of loophole in there will be will be pulled at and, and all of the spells and, and binding and whatever else that happens will become unraveled. So I, I really, really like that kind of thing. What is your highlight? Um... I don't know. Maybe, maybe the dag the fighting an octopus. Although it did seem as kind of <laughs> as, 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 as kind of a just just been able to say that line actually, the dag the fought an octopus. But yeah, I mean, it is one of those things that you say and people go, "That never happened in yeah. Irish mythology," because they think that you know it's just the children of Lear. But no, it it, yeah. it well. Um, there you no, go. That, that, that was almost kind of like a, a a subplot in the whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like you know the dag is just like so popular they have to like drop them back in every so often to, <laughs> for the ratings people well, are going who's this Smitter lad I don't know the doctor's in a class <laughs> well we would also love to hear your highlights so please send them in to us you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P on Instagram at Irish Mythology on Facebook Irish Mythology Podcast and on the internet at Irish Mythology Podcast dot IE and of course you can also find us on Patreon where from as little as three euro a month, you can financially support our work and get extra content. 
You can also support us by spreading the word, sharing our episodes, giving us a five-star rating and writing a nice review on podcast platforms that have that feature. So thank you so much for listening and son. And remember, folks, if someone asks you to the cinema, be very careful. Just like in mythology, get all of the detail of what it is you're actually agreeing to, because you never know. You could end up sitting there for three and a half hours of your life that you'll never get back. You could be at home listening to us from the comfort of your bed. Anyway, EOI Augustlan. Angus slams the severed head upon the table. Midder looks up to see Fumnuk's eyes, still defiant, looking back at him. That's not going to bring Attain back, is it? Midder sighs. No, but when we do find her, she'll be safe, replies Angus. When will we find her? Midder says wistfully. When? You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast written, presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nihirni Theme music by Damiano Baldoni Celtic Warrior on an attribution licence Attain the fly drifts upon the winds It feels like it has been another seven years. She has barely any strength left, but for the first time, she has hope. For the first time since she was blown away on Fumnuk's wind, she can see land, people. But where is she? When? The humans, clad in iron armour, not bronze. The stone-walled fortifications instead of wattle and daub. This is not the world she remembers. This is a strange world. The wind that brought her here is gone. And so is the power in her wings. She falls.